The following is a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you find this teaching encouraging and instructive. Perhaps you are currently a follower of Christ or are perplexed, skeptical, or even antagonistic to Christianity. Regardless, we would love to hear from you. Please contact us at info at citylifetc.org. Thank you for listening, and please contact us if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you. This morning's reading comes from Colossians. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. So we sang this morning, crown him with many crowns, Some of you wanted to applaud, I could tell. Certainly is appropriate that we applaud our great king, which reminds me of the fact that yesterday in the coronation of someone else, his name is King Charles, the Hindu prime minister of England read to the king exactly this passage that we are looking at today and next Sunday, which deals not with the supremacy of an earthly king, but the supremacy of our King, Jesus Christ. So I want to uh, start off uh, with the, uh, this slide here. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is this phrase, live out God's will to walk worthy of God's name. Live out God's will to walk worthy of God's name. Let's read this together. Let me hear you. Live out God's will to walk worthy of God's name. One more time. Live out God's will to walk worthy of God's name. Paul is uh, addressing the church in Colossae, and we need to understand that in the first century... Colossae was located today in Turkey, or in today's Turkey, but located in the midst of a barbaric and godless culture. Christians were viewed as fringe people, as people to be despised, as people who should be tormented because they're out of step with culture. I'm glad that Paul is addressing this because, frankly, people, I think we in our culture need a lot of advice right now. Church, I think we need a lot of help. We need a word from the Lord, how to live in our culture. Ours has developed from modernity 
which emphasized that all truth is relative, to post-modernity, which emphasizes that all truth is totally subjective. And so we've become a narcissistic culture where everything revolves around the individual and what he believes to be his or her rights, including the right to not be offended. And so what is happening in this year, we would have never dreamed of this being possible 20 years ago. And frankly, this morning, I grieve. I grieve over the fact that there have been more mass shootings this year than days in the year. And that last yesterday afternoon, they had to cover with sheets eight more bodies outside of a mall near Dallas. I grieve over the fact that the neighbor boy, who's ever neighbor boy, is in the process of wanting to become a girl. To the cheering of his mother and his schoolmates who think it's really cool that he's pursuing this social fad. I grieve over the baker who in all good conscience said no to the request to bake a cake for a special event of which he could not in his heart agree that it happened and as a result was taken to court. I grieve over where we are in a culture where it seems like it's a train that has gotten off the tracks completely and is now just stampeding its way through the nearby homes and bringing so much destruction. Church, the problem is that we're being pressured by a totalitarian wave to compromise. Not tolerate only, but compromise. And if we don't conform, we are persecuted. Church, this is the situation in which we live. And I grieve, don't you? And we need a word. We need a word from the Lord. How do we live in this world? And this is the word that Paul brings to us. Essentially, in these verses that we're going to look at, verses 9 through 14, Paul is saying, look, your starting point for living in this world is that you are not of this world. Now, those were the words of Jesus. Paul puts it in these terms. You see in verse 14 the word redemption. Redemption means to purchase to purchase off of a slave block, to purchase into ownership that liberates. And in fact, we who are followers of Jesus, known as Christians, have been purchased by Christ's blood into Christ's ownership. That's redemption. You'll notice that three times in the first 12 verses, Paul uses the word saints. As Pastor Adam explained to us in the opening sermon on Colossians, saints is a word that means we're still here, we're living, 
And it's not that we're saints because we're good, but it's we're saints because Jesus has separated us into his ownership. And so we're saints, separated. And he says the same thing in verse 13, only in these words. We've been transferred, you see that? Transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Now we might ask ourselves, who is loving the Son? That makes Him beloved. And the answer comes out of verse 12. It's the Father. God the Father. So here is what's going on. As God beams His love upon the Son, He is beaming His love upon all who are in the Son. The saints, the redeemed, who are in Christ. And that's why I said to you last week that every Christian who knows he's a saint, he's redeemed, and he's been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son can say, as the second part of the Gospel, in Christ I am more loved than I ever dared to hope. So, in summary, you're owned by Him, you're separated unto Him, you're loved in Him, you are not of this world. But while you are living in this world, live out God's will to walk worthy of God's name. Let's take that apart for the rest of this sermon. The first thing that I want to point out as what it means, thank you, to live out God's will, to walk worthy of God's name, is orient every aspect of your life around God's will. You see that in the second part of verse 9. Here's Paul's prayer. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of, of his will. Now, when we talk about the will of God, we need to differentiate <clears throat> between the secret will of God and the moral will of God. First of all, the secret will of God, which is completely sovereign. One of my favorite texts in the Bible is Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Easy to remember, 229s. And it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. What are the secret things? Uh, This is the same as the word decree. The agreement within the Trinity on how every detail of history and your history should go. Or as we say, or has been written in the shorter catechism, by which God has foreordained whatsoever shall come to pass. Ephesians 1.11 calls it the counsel of His will. So that includes a lot of questions 
that we ask, like, who are the elect? Well, it's his secret, and he's not telling. When will the world end? That's his secret, and he's not telling. When will your life end? You don't know. He does, but it's his secret, and he's not telling. Where should you live? Who should you marry? Or should you stay single for all of your life? What tragedies await your family? These are all in the secret will, the sovereign will of God. And he's not telling. Except this, the great Scottish theologian who taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia many years, John Murray once wrote, I think it's in his Romans commentary, you can only know the sovereign will of God after it has happened. So let's say you're asking the question, should I take this job? Is it God's will that I take this job? The only way you will know that you should take that particular job according to God's sovereign will is on the first day of the job when you walk into your new location of the job and you can say, well, obviously this was God's sovereign will. The secret things belong to the Lord. And, they're com and he's completely sovereign in these secret things. Now the second part is the moral will of God. And while the secret will of God is completely sovereign, the moral will of God is completely trustworthy. I didn't read the second part of Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. I will now. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed, revealed, belong to us and to our children forever. And what are those revealed things that belong to us? Moses writes that we may do all the words of this law. The revealed will of God is the Word of God. The Scriptures, they become essentially the moral commands and the principles around which you order your life. As an example of this, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That is a revealed moral will of God. So to summarize what I've said so far about the will of God is that when you pray, as you will later, the Lord's Prayer and say, your will be done, you are essentially praying something like this, putting the two wills <coughs> together. <coughs> Help me to live out your moral will, which I know, into your sovereign will, which I don't yet know. Get it? Help me to live your moral will, which I know, as I live into your sovereign will, 
which I don't yet know. Now, some of you might be saying at this point, yeah, Beck, you know, that's what I don't like about Christianity. It's all this moral stuff, all these rules and regulations. I'm not going to give you the answer that is so common. No, it's not about rules and regulations. It's about a relationship. I mean, it is about a relationship. But there are rules and regulations. That phrase is even used in the Bible. But why are there rules and regulations? Because essentially... In a culture that is seeking to liberate itself, true liberty for the human being is when we live in the moral will of God, which we know into the sovereign will of God, which we don't yet know. There's true liberation in that. Let me show you how. First of all, living within the moral will means you are living in fellowship with God. And you know what that means? You can live with a clear conscience. Now that's liberating. You know how many acts of violence today are done out of a sense of guilt or shame or having been shamed? See, when you live according to the moral will of God, you get a clean conscience. The, the shame that you feel, the guilt that you have and carry is actually taken up in verse 14, the forgiveness of our sins. So you can live with a good conscience. Secondly, while living within the moral will, you make your decisions. You make your plans. And if it appears that your plans are not working out well, then you know that God in His sovereign will permitted those decisions in order to teach you something you otherwise wouldn't have learned, in order to mature you, in order to turn it to your good. See how liberating it is to live within the moral will. And thirdly, if you follow his moral will, he will provide as you carry out his sovereign will. He will provide. God never calls you sovereignly into a situation and then lets you be in a lurch, have to row your boat by yourself. It's as Augustine once wrote so beautifully, God commands what he wills, and he gives what he commands. So you can always be sure that if you are walking according to the moral will of God, God will sovereignly bless you with everything you need to do his will in this world. So live out God's will to walk worthy of God's name. And the first thing that that means is you need to orient every aspect of your life around God's will. Now, as my voice is getting more and more hoarse, let's move on to the second thing that we're going to take out of this thematic statement I've put before you. And that is, please God by the manner with which you live in His will. Please God 
by the manner with which you live in his will. You will see now at the beginning of verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You are living in the will of God in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That word walk, it's a, it's a word, Paul likes that word. You find it in several of his letters and it literally could be translated walk around. It's referring to lifestyle. So he's saying, live your lifestyle in this way, verse 10, that you be fully pleasing to the Lord. He contrasts that in Colossians 3.22 with this statement, don't live as people pleasers. So what Paul is essentially saying to the Colossians and to us is don't take your direction from cultural trends or social media or fads or a political party or whatever. In terms of what you can do, should do, can say, shouldn't say. Take your direction from the Lord. From his moral will. And the manner in which you take his direction. He now spells out, if I could just get a little grammatical with you, through four participles. And you'll see them up here in the slide. Verse 10. See that? Bearing fruit in every good work. Second participle, verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. Third participle, verse 11, strengthened with God's strength. And the fourth participle, verse 12, thankful for your share in the Father's inheritance in the light. Now on the first one, bearing fruit in every good work, uh, we're going to have many occasions in the future to talk about what it means to not be saved by good works, but to serve him who has saved us by good works. So at this point, all I want to say is, let the world, let the world see you doing good works. Even if you're just a child, let your school see you doing good works. Wherever you live, let your neighborhood see you doing good works. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace that we have been saved. But then he says in verse 10, we've been predestinated unto good works. Let the world see your good works because in your good works, they see the Christ who saves and redeems, and turns us into saints who are sinful, but who are immensely loved by the Father because we're in His beloved Son. Secondly, increasing in the knowledge of God. <coughs> Again, I'm going to get a little technical with you here, and I'm going to tell you that this word knowledge here is not, as we saw last week already, the normal word for knowledge. It's not gnosis, it's epignosis. 
So what it actually means when he says increasing in the knowledge of God, verse 10, is not increasing in a classroom type of knowledge where you're taking notes like on the attributes of God and then you memorize them and then you spit them back and get a good grade on a test. Now, I'm not against good grades and we certainly aren't against the attributes of God. In fact, we need to know the attributes of God and what makes him so wonderful. But what Paul is talking about here is not just increasing in our intellectual understanding of God, but growing in your knowledge of God by experiencing God. Experiencing God. It's kind of like a marriage. I'm not going to give away any names of the old folks gathering that happened some time ago that included Susan and me, where a bunch of us old folks talked about life and becoming old folks. I asked the question to the group, what do you enjoy, after all these years of marriage, most in your marriage? And I was so impressed how one couple answered that question because I could really identify with what she said. She said, we have grown into such of a oneness that we can think the same thought at the same time. This is essentially the marriage that Paul is talking about here with the Lord, with growing in our knowledge, in our experiential knowledge of the Lord. It's essentially this, experiencing God in your lifestyle of moral obedience so long that His Spirit conveys to your spirit what his spirit is thinking and your spirit starts to think. And you're both thinking the same thing at the same time. It's a holy marriage. It's intimacy with God. It usually takes us years of growing and trusting. And I'm emphasizing trusting because you will remember I talked about five levels of faith last Sunday. Well, one of the passages in Paul that talks about growing in faith is Romans 1.17 where he says, of faith unto faith. So it's growing from faith to more faith to more faith to even more faith to the point where you start thinking God's thoughts after Him in a given situation that has to do with His sovereign will. And you're of course not sure what you should do in the next moment. But then he gives you this knowledge from his heart into your heart and you start thinking the same thing he's thinking and you act on his knowledge and desires that he's implanted in you. If you think I'm going off the tracks here in Reformed theology, look back at the English Puritans, the Reformed theologians in England and Scotland in the 17th century, they talked about the same thing. They called it impressions of the Holy Spirit upon us. 
so that we act according to what God is thinking and move into something of his sovereign will exactly the way he wants it to be done. So as you navigate through our culture, as you navigate through a corrupt world, grow, increase in your experiential knowledge of God and learn to walk so closely with him that you both are thinking the same thought at the same time. Thirdly, strengthened with God's strength, verse 11. I don't want to spend much time on this, uh, but to say this, I think you'll take this along as a pearl for the rest of your life. When Paul is saying here, strengthened with God's strength, he is not suggesting an initial impetus of power that should last you for your entire Christian life. He's talking about his power being, God's power being available in every new situation anew. And not just out of his strength, but according to his strength. So that all the strength that is in God. He gives you for any given moment when you feel oppressed, when you feel like you're down under in this culture and you just don't know how to move forward. God provides you with His strength. And the fourth and final thing, I think this is the one I like the most, is verse 12. Thankful for your share in the Father's inheritance in the light. Paul uses the word light sometimes in his letters in the present tense as something that is light for us in the present. Like he'll say, God is light. Or in Ephesians 5, he talks about walking as children of light, of the light in the world. And by that he means, again, a lifestyle in conformity with God's holiness. Obedience to the moral will of God. That's the present tense. But sometimes Paul uses the word light in a future tense. And I think that's very obvious what he's doing here. The light that he's referring to in verse 12 is where it says the inheritance in the light is essentially future. The inheritance is future. It is the same as what you see in verse 5 and saw last week, the hope laid up in heaven. Now track me on this, because this gets really, really great. In verse 27, this hope laid up in heaven, Paul calls Christ in you, the hope of glory. You heard of near-death experiences? I'm fascinated uh, by all of the research that has been done by a number of Christian apologists like Gary Habermas and others on near-death experiences. There are a number of books out now by um, Christian scholars that we very much respect 
who uh, are looking through all the documentation on near-death experiences. So near-death experience simply means you're dead for a while and then you come back to life. Don Piper, for example, wrote his book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And I'm fascinated by this man's story. He was involved in a horrific car crash. And he was pronounced dead. But a pastor who had stopped in the car, with the permission of the policeman, climbed into the back of this crushed car, laid his hand on Don Piper's shoulders, and starts to pray. And he starts to sing. Meanwhile, Don Piper says, talking about light, in his state of death, he's taken up into a brilliant, soothing light. And he walks through a large, majestic gate. And suddenly his grandfather and several others come running towards him. His grandfather, who had a, a tremendous influence on Don Piper's life and conversion and faith, and hugs him and welcomes him to heaven. Meanwhile, Don Piper hears this music coming from somewhere that is so grand, so grand, it just fills his soul with a joy he could never, ever have imagined, and a peace and a soothing, and it's like a moment in which he, he just wanted to exist forever. When suddenly he heard a song. And it was what the pastor was singing to him. And he left that brilliant moment. And he came back to life in his car. You can check me out on this. Don Piper's alive today. And I'll tell you what. He's living life differently now than before he had his near-death experience. You know why? Because he knows what's waiting for him. <laughs> I think that's what Paul is getting at here. I think that's what we, the saints, need to know. You know the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 13, while we are strangers and exiles here on earth, we are waving from afar to our inheritance in heaven. We are greeting it from afar. We're longing for it. We can already see it. We can already feel it. It's the world we've always wanted. It's what Revelation calls the new heaven and the new earth. It's our real home. It's our eternal home. And we're, we're longing for it. We're waving to it from afar. That great apologist Francis Schaeffer once said, that's how you live your spiritual life. You daily step into heaven and see what awaits you. In fact, Paul says that. I think Francis Schaeffer got it from Paul. 
Look over in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 of Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Schaefer says, look, live every day like this. Step into heaven. Look at your inheritance. See the glorious stuff that is awaiting you. And then like in a near-death experience, come back down to earth and live the rest of your day according to what's waiting for you in all eternity. You know how that changes your priorities? It not only changes your priorities, but it also gives you the endurance, the ability to live under the pressures of a corrupt society. And it gives you what Paul calls, somewhere in these verses, joy. Joy joy is like bubbly peace. Right? You just feel complete calmness in the midst of horrible things that are going on around you and could affect your family. But this calmness is jumping up and down with great joy because you know it's just a matter of time when in God's sovereign will we're going to actually take possession of what now we're waving to from afar. And it will all be ours. There will be no interruption. It will be ours forever. My time is up. I hope you're comforted and encouraged by what Paul has taught us today. Understand that we are to live out God's will to walk worthy of God's name. And so, let's all say it one more time together. Live out God's will to walk worthy of God's name. Here we go. Live out God's will to walk worthy of God's name. Lord Jesus, take these words from your word. Impress them upon our hearts. Help us to live for tomorrow in the today. Help us to live with the gratitude of being in Christ. And I pray for anybody who's here who's not yet in Christ and is living in this world of this world. And I pray that even now, as that person has heard the gospel, that you would translate that person into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you were encouraged by this teaching. Thank you for listening, and please contact us at info at citylifetc.org if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you.